This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 21st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Ideas about how to fix the Supreme Court vary widely from term limits to expanding the size of the court. But does the Supreme Court even need fixing? At the Cato Club event held earlier this month, Cato's Ilya Shapiro offered some lessons for thinking about the high court. Well, the Supreme Court begins its new term next week. Uh, And you're hearing a lot, as Sally mentioned, about how the court needs to be reformed in various ways to maintain its legitimacy. Term limits, adding justices for political reasons, court packing, uh, and more technical proposals have been bandied about. There's even a presidential commission, as I said, as as Sally said, uh, at which I testified this summer with a report due out right before Thanksgiving. So right after you have your turkey, I'm sure that report will uh, help you have have a nap. Um, But it's not at all clear that the court needs fixing. Last term was supposed to be a coming out party for the new six to three hyper-conservative court, but was marked largely by surprising unanimity and uh, never before seen alignments of justices. Yet the last few years have shown that the court is now covered by the same toxic cloud that's enveloped the rest of our public discourse. Although it's still respected than most institutions, it's increasingly viewed through a political lens. Given the controversy over the last three justices, what lessons can we draw from the history of confirmation battles? Um, I came up with seven, and, and they show that to the extent we need institutional reform, it has nothing to do with structural issues. So first lesson, politics has indeed always been part of the process. From the early republic, presidents have picked justices for reasons that include balancing regional interests, supporting policy priorities, providing representation to key constituencies. They've tried to find people in line with their own political thinking and that of their supporters. Look at the battles of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson over the Midnight Judges Act, the original court packing. There's never been a golden age when so-called merit is the only objective criterion. And control of the Senate is key. Historically, the Senate has confirmed fewer than 60% of Supreme Court nominees under divided government as compared to about 90% when the president's party also controls the Senate. Timing matters too. Over 80% of nominees in the first three years of a presidential term have been confirmed, but barely more than half in the fourth year. Combining these disparities shows that only 20% of election year nominees have been confirmed under divided government, but 90% under united. So the 2016 blockade of Merrick Garland and the 2020 expedited confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett were hardball politics, but hardly unprecedented and indeed statistically predictable. Second lesson, confirmation fights are now driven by judicial philosophy. To a certain extent, the politicization of Supreme Court nominees and appointments has tracked political divisions nationally. But couching opposition in terms of judicial philosophy, that's a modern phenomenon. Earlier controversies tended to revolve around the president's deviations from shared understandings of uh, the factors that go into nominations for particular seats, uh, regional interests, religion, things like that. That dynamic is markedly different from the ideological considerations we see now. And we now have the culmination of several trends whereby divergent interpretive theories map onto partisan preference at a time when the parties 
are more ideologically sorted and polarized than at least the Civil War. So it's impossible for a president to find a so-called uncontroversial nominee or for confirmations not to be politically fraught. Third lesson, modern confirmations are different because the culture is different. The inflection point for our legal culture, as for our social and political culture, is that fateful year of 1968. Until that point, most justices were confirmed by voice vote without needing a roll call. Since then, there hasn't been a single voice vote, not even for the five justices confirmed unanimously or the four who had fewer than 10 no votes. And despite those easy confirmations, we've seen an upswing in no votes. Five of the eight closest confirmation margins in our history have taken place in the last 30 years. Now, there are many factors going into this contentiousness of the last half century. The Warren Court's activism and then Roe v. Wade spawning a conservative reaction. The growth of presidential power such that the Senate needs to reassert itself. The culture of scandal since Watergate. A desire for transparency when technology allows not just a 24-hour news cycle, but the constant and instant delivery of information and opinion. And fundamentally, more divided government as the Senate has grown less deferential and nominees more ideological, the clashes have grown. Fourth lesson, hearings have become kabuki theater. Public hearings have only been around for a century. Uh, they started with the very controversial Louis Brandeis nomination in 1916. He was the first Jewish nominee, also a, a crusading progressive, uh, but he didn't testify at his own hearing. That was seen as unseemly. Uh, it wasn't regular practice to hold these hearings with the nominee until about the 50s when Dixiecrats used them to rail against Brown versus Board of Education and other civil rights issues. Otherwise, they became perfunctory discussions of biography. John Paul Stevens, the first nominee after Roe v. Wade, wasn't even asked about the case. And believe me, it was already controversial at the time. Things changed in the 80s when the hearings began to be televised. Now, all senators ask questions, but nominees largely refuse to answer, creating what uh, then-Professor Elena Kagan called 25 years ago a vapid and hollow charade. But even with this conventional narrative, there's been a subtle shift. Beginning with John Roberts in 2005, the nominees still covered the holdings of cases and what lawyers call black-letter law, what you need to know to get a, a good grade on a law school exam, but there's no revelation of personal opinion. Senators try to get nominees to uh, admit that certain cases are so-called settled law, whether Roe when coming from a Democrat or, or District of Columbia versus Heller, uh, the Second Amendment case when coming from a Republican. Of course, when you're dealing with the Supreme Court, the law is settled until it isn't. Fifth lesson, every nomination can have a significant impact. The confirmation process has little to do with being a judge. Once that spectacle is over, the new justice takes his or her seat to begin the, uh, the job with his new colleagues of reading briefs and deciding technical questions. As former White House counsel Don McGahn put it, quote, it's a Hollywood audition to join a monastery. Regardless, as the late Justice Byron White was fond of saying, every justice creates a new court. So each change shakes up the balance and not just based on the party of the president making the appointment. Now, many cases would have been decided differently had Robert Bork uh, 
Ronald Reagan's nominee uh, in, in 87, been confirmed instead of the eventual confirmation of Anthony Kennedy, and differently still had the libertarian Douglas Ginsburg occupied that seat. He was in between Bork and Kennedy. I call him the, the last uh, public casualty of the drug war. He had to be withdrawn because he had uh, smoked marijuana with his uh, law students. Uh, you know, has, has any public official's career been hurt in the last 30 years from revelation of marijuana use since? I, I don't think so. But anyway, presidents aren't always successful in moving the court in their preferred direction. Jefferson tried valiantly to dislodge the powerful Federalist impulse, uh, only to see his nominees fall under John Marshall's sway. Lincoln named Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase as Chief Justice, partly to get him out of his hair, but more importantly, to uphold the legislation by which the federal government financed the Civil War. Instead, Chief Justice Chase wrote the opinion finding the Legal Tender Act which he had helped write, unconstitutional. Teddy Roosevelt should have been pleased with the great progressive Oliver Wendell Holmes, but after an important antitrust case uh, went the wrong way, TR invade that, quote, I could carve out of a banana a judge with more backbone than that. Woodrow Wilson, a renowned constitutional scholar named a progressive Brandeis, uh, but also the most retrograde act uh, justice that perhaps we've ever seen, James McReynolds, who didn't share any of Wilson's views other than with regard to antitrust and, I guess, bigotry. Calvin Coolidge, lots of Calvin Coolidge fans here, I'm sure. Uh, His sole nominee, Harlan Stone, ended up betraying his benefactor's laissez-faire attitude. Eisenhower was disappointed with both Earl Warren and William Brennan, although the latter was more of a political calculation ahead of the 1956 election to help with the Metropolitan Catholic vote, which it did. Nixon, right, he he appointed Harry Blackman, and that similarly mitigated what he hoped to achieve in trying to counter the Warren court. So you don't always get what you want. If you try some some time, you might not even get what you need, I guess, the the Rolling Stone theory of uh, judicial appointments. All right, lesson six. Uh, The hardest confirmations come when there's a potential for a big shift. So Uh, replacing the liberal lion Thurgood Marshall with countercultural conservative Clarence Thomas was a big fight. But appointing Antonin Scalia to William Rehnquist's seat when Rehnquist was elevated, that was a cakewalk. Would Brett Kavanaugh have faced such opposition if he had been picked for Thomas's seat? Would there have been as big a ruckus a year ago if if Trump were replacing Thomas rather than RBG? In part because they've been burned so many times, Republicans focus on the court as an election issue more than Democrats. Now, Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, Shelby County, the three biggest progressive losses of the last 25 years have riled activists and elites and ratcheted up confirmation battles, but haven't really translated into campaigns over judges as such. Democrats might now be catching up Uh, even though during the Garland experience, they didn't make much of that particular vacancy or the political fight. Moreover, vacancies have become more important in the last half century because judges, uh, justices have served longer. Before 1970, the average tenure of a justice was less than 15 years. Since then, it's been more than 25. Justices appointed before age 50 are likely to serve nine presidential terms. Justice Thomas, who was 43 when he was appointed, and this month celebrates 30 years on the court, could serve another decade. Lesson seven, the court rules on so many issues that confirmation battles are unavoidable. 
Under the Framers' Constitution, by which the country lived for its first 150 years, the Supreme Court hardly ever had to curtail a federal law. If you read the congressional record of the 18th and 19th centuries, Congress debated whether particular legislation was constitutional much more than whether something was a good idea. In 1887, Grover Cleveland vetoed an appropriation of $10,000 for seeds to Texas farmers who were undergoing a terrible drought, saying he could find no warrant for such appropriation in the Constitution, correctly reading the Supreme Court jurisprudence at the time. Judges play bigger roles today. As the court has allowed the government to grow, so has its own power to police the federal programs that its own jurisprudence enabled. For example, the idea that the General Welfare Clause justifies any legislation that gains a majority in Congress, as opposed to limiting federal reach to truly national issues, well, that emerged in the Progressive Era. And in the 30s and 40s, we had the perverse expansion of the Commerce Clause with cases like Wickard versus Filburn, which gained renewed prominence in the debate over Obamacare, that is, Congress's power to reach into your own backyard and regulate what plants you're growing there. That was reflected again 70 years later in the, uh, the uh, Raich case. We went from wheat to weed with hardly a change uh, in federal authority. We've also had the flip side of the expansion of powers, the warping of rights. In 1938, the infamous footnote four of the Caroline Products case made certain rights more equal than others in a kind of animal farm theory of the Constitution. So it's the New Deal court that politicized the Constitution and thus the confirmation process by laying the foundation for judicial mischief of all kinds. As my predecessor, Roger Pallon, who's in the audience here, wrote 20 years ago, I think this is, you know, typically op-eds have the shelf life these days of, you know, the same as a Snapchat just disappears instantly, but this is still uh, it was you know, very prescient. 20 years ago, quote, because constitutional principles limiting federal power to enumerated ends have been ignored, the scope of that power and the subjects open to federal concern are determined now by politics alone. Because the rights that would limit the exercise of that power are grounded increasingly not in first principles, but in the subjective understandings of judges about evolving social values, they too increasingly reflect the politics of the day. Will any reforms to the confirmation process change this warped, toxic dynamic? Should we have rules for how many days after a nomination, a nominee has to have a hearing and then a vote? Maybe we should restore the filibuster. I've come to the conclusion that we should get rid of hearings altogether, that they now inflict greater cost on our public discourse than any informational benefit. Or the Senate could at least hold them in closed session, as it does for sensitive uh, FBI background checks, financial materials, that sort of thing. The, uh, the closed uh, intelligence committees uh, uh, do real work, whereas the, the, the public and open committees are, are just a bunch of, of grandstanding. But anyway, I'm not sure any formalistic changes would do much, given that it's the poisonous atmosphere that caused a breakdown in rules, not the other way around. All this reform talk is just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and this Titanic is not the appointment process, but the ship of state. The fundamental problem we face is the politicization of the product, not the process. We've gotten where we are because Congress and the executive branch have gradually taken more power for themselves, and the Supreme Court has allowed them to get away with it, aggrandizing itself in the process. 
Meanwhile, the response of the conservative legal movement to various judicial provocations has shifted. Before, conservatives called for restraint in the face of the Warren Court making up social policy, which ultimately led to too much deference to the political branches. You saw that with John Roberts's vote in the Obamacare case. Now, moving thankfully in a more libertarian direction, the focus is on engaging with the law. Instead of judges exercising what Alexander Bickel, a, a Yale Law faculty colleague of, of Robert Bork's actually, what he called the passive virtues, that judges should more often decide not to decide, sit on their hands. Well, what's the use of having judges if they're gonna do that? That is, judicial review is constitutional and appropriate because otherwise the judiciary can't ensure that the government secures and protects our liberties. If that's so, then we should only be concerned that a court get it right, rather than whether that correct interpretation leads to the challenged law being upheld or overturned. To paraphrase Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing, the little guy should win when he's in the right, and the big corporation should win when it's in the right. The dividing line then isn't between judicial activism, which is kind of an empty phrase that just means I don't like that opinion. It's not between activism and restraint, but between legitimate and vigorous judicial engagement or just judging uh, and illegitimate judicial imperialism or, or abdication. If nominations were depoliticized, that would likewise depoliticize judicial power, both in perception and reality. But term limits would take a constitutional amendment. Court packing would only further politicize the court. And everything else is either unworkable or doesn't solve the identified problem of this politicization. The only lasting solution to what ails our body juridic is to return to the founder's constitution by rebalancing and devolving power. Depoliticizing the judiciary, toning down confirmations, those are laudable goals. But that'll only happen when judges go back to judging rather than ratifying the constitutional excesses of the, uh, of the other branches. The judiciary needs to once again hold politicians and bureaucrats' feet to the constitutional fire by rejecting overly broad legislation of dubious constitutional warrant, curbing executive agency overreach, and putting the ball back in Congress's court, and by returning power to the people while ensuring that local majorities don't invade individual constitutional rights. After all, the separation of powers and federalism, these aren't a dry exercise in Madisonian political theory, but a means to that singular end of securing and protecting our freedom. Ultimately, judicial uh, review, the judicial power, is an enforcement mechanism for the strictures of a founding document meant just as much to curtail the excesses of democracy as to empower its exercise. In a country ruled by law and not men, the proper response to an unpopular legal decision is to change the law or amend the Constitution. Any other method leads to a sort of judicial abdication and the loss of those very rights that the judicial branch, that the Constitution was meant to preserve, that the judicial process is meant to check the violation of, or to government by black-robed philosopher kings. And as Justice Scalia liked to say, why would we pick nine lawyers for that job? So the reason we have heated court battles is that the federal government is simply making too many decisions for such a large, diverse, pluralistic society. There's no more reason that there needs to be a one-size-fits-all healthcare system in the country than that 
zoning regulations be uniform in every city. Let federal legislators, not regulators, make the hard calls about truly national issues like defense and actually interstate actual commerce. But let states and localities make most of the decisions that affect our daily lives. Let Texas be Texas and California be California. That's the only way we're going to diffuse tensions in Washington, whether in the halls of Congress or in the marble palace of the highest court in the land. Ilya Shapiro directs the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 